Welcome to the Passing Judgment Podcast. This is a podcast for you, people who are curious about politics and the law and how the biggest political and legal issues of the moment affect you. I'm your host, Jessica Levinson. I'm a professor at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles, and I hope you'll pull up a chair and join me and a rotating cast of experts, including journalists, politicians, political scientists, lawyers, as we talk through some of the most important issues of our time. We're going to tackle things like, is the Constitution in crisis? What are the laws of our democracy? How are they changing? And what does that mean for your daily life? I hope you'll listen, provide us with some feedback, and enjoy the time that we can spend together. This week, we're joined by CNBC reporter Jane Wells. Jane develops features, special reports, and series for CNBC and contributes to their breaking news coverage. Jane joined CNBC more than 20 years ago when she provided special coverage of the O.J. Simpson civil case. Jane has served as a senior correspondent for CNBC's Upfront Tonight. She has also helped create the Strange Success franchise for CNBC Make It and produces a companion podcast. Jane had received numerous honors for her work, including a 1992 Peabody Award and a DuPont Award for her role in the live coverage of the Rodney King trial. Also in 1992, she earned a Los Angeles Emmy Award for her investigative reporting. She has also received, among many other awards, a UPI Award, a Press Club Award, and Emmy Awards for her feature reporting. On this episode, we'll tackle some of the biggest political stories of the moment. We'll discuss everything from the polarization of American voters during the Trump administration, to fake news, to mask shaming, to the pitfalls of social media. Jane Wells, thanks for joining us and passing judgment with us. You know, the title of this podcast is my spirit animal. Uh, (laughs) That's all I do is pass judgment. Uh, whether or not my judgment is correct or not. So I love this. Let me say, so, so thrilled that you're here. Yes, well, certain resumes may appear better than uh, they are in reality. But uh, thank you. Yeah, no, I've uh, I've been a, a TV news reporter my entire professional career going back to the 80s, early 80s. And yeah, my first job in LA on air was back at Fox 11. So that's where we first encountered each other a couple years ago. So... How did you decide to go into journalism? Not for the right reasons. (laughs) I was in high school, and this was in the late 70s, and Barbara Walters had just signed a $1 million contract to co-anchor the ABC Evening News with Harry Reasoner. And I thought, I can do that. I mean, you know, of course, I'm still waiting to make a million dollars. But I thought, you know, people are always telling me stuff and thinking I – They don't ask me to keep it a secret, and I don't, but I had this way of getting people to open up and talk to me. And so I decided to go and broadcast journalism, went to USC, which had, has, but really then it was one of the first broadcast journalism programs in the country, and fell in love with just uh, storytelling, using video, um, meeting people. I wanted to travel. I thought this would be a good way to do that, and it has been. So I have to say that's exactly true. You do have a way of getting people to open up. And we have not actually met in person that many times. But whenever I'm on the air, I feel like, oh, it's my friend Jane. And of course, and sometimes I even forget we're live. And of course, let me just share X, (laughs) Y, and Z story. And I think that really is part of your secret sauce. 
Oh, uh, well, thank you. It's it either happens or it doesn't happen. And I really do like people as much as I pass judgment on everyone. But my favorite stories are not meeting famous people. I I have no I shouldn't say I have no interest in that, but that I, I, like I know reporters who want to have their pictures taken with. So I, that's not me. I like going out and meeting the people who are like right now in this pandemic and the small business people who are trying to make it work. You know, uh, we talk about it on CNBC, the Wall Street angle all the time. I like to be out there on Main Street where people are really struggling to just figure out what to do next. Well, so that may be really the key difference between the two of us, whereas I um, fear other humans. And and at this point, <laughs> really would prefer to just be sheltering in place as opposed to you saying that, you know, you really want to be on Main Street. But um, uh, what are some of the stories that you're telling right now? I know a lot of small businesses and big businesses are really struggling. I'm trying to find interesting metrics. It's very hard when the markets are swinging like they are and volatile as they are and large companies are uh, breaking news every day. It's hard as a reporter to get out there with just a regular story. So I'm trying to do things like focus on metrics that are different. I did a story on how the funeral industry, which is very traditional, not tech savvy, loath to change, has been forced to pivot in this pandemic to create a revenue stream. And now that they're actually streaming memorial services, that's something they're going to continue to do. I mean, those are the sorts of things. I did a story on uh, the garbage industry, how... um, one of the good things about the pandemic is overall trash has gone down. The The fact that our residential trash has gone up uh, has not compensated for how much more commercial and restaurant trash has gone down. But then, you know, that's not good for the trash companies. But that's starting to turn around now and commercial trash is starting to go back up. So these are the sorts of things that I think like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Now you at home might be like, wow, that's so fascinating. <sighs> But when you go out and you talk to the small business guy whose trash company was the only, only vendor that gave him a break on his bill when he had to shut down for three months, and that $270 a month means the world to him, I mean, that's a good story. That's a human story about, uh, that's a Main Street story. It, it actually is. And it's something that I think a lot of us hadn't considered because we're just trying to stay safe, keep our own jobs, trying to figure out whether or not our kids are going back to school, whether or not, you know, if we're in that situation, our Amazon Fresh delivery is ever going to come. And we don't think about all of these aspects of the economy and all these aspects of what's happening in small businesses. And I am, I am glad you're telling that story. I didn't think we were going to hit funerals this early in the podcast. <laughs> well, I talked about Tombstone already. I think it's going to be a theme. Is, oh, wow, I desperately hope not. But <laughs> but thank you for that. Now, we, we've been talking a little bit, obviously, about the pandemic. What's one of the first things you're going to do when it feels safe for things to, quote unquote, open up? I am going to get on an airplane and go to Okinawa, Japan, and see my grandson, who is not quite a year old, uh, obviously, that has been impossible to do. Thank yeah. goodness for FaceTime. But that, um, and I don't know, Jessica, when I'm going to feel safe enough to do that. My son and daughter-in-law are are really, they're down there by themselves. They don't have any help. And I know that they would love to have someone come help. But I think it's more about me. When am I going to feel comfortable flying 11 hours to Tokyo, transiting through a terminal, then another two and a half hours to Okinawa? But I desperately, desperately want to go see that little boy. (laughs) 
I can only imagine. And one of the, I mean, one of the saving graces, as you said, is FaceTime, Zoom, all mm-hmm. of these technologies that we didn't used to have, which have made it made this really difficult time you know, a bit easier, at least. Yeah, you know, I have friends who live alone, and it took me about three weeks to realize, you know, maybe they're lonely. And because my husband was, you know, we all had to work from home. He's a pilot, so there was no flying. And, you know, we were enjoying ourselves in sort of this weird way of like being together and and eating cooked food and blah, our own home cooking. And then I realized how many friends I have who who could not leave and don't have anyone else in the house with them, maybe don't even have a pet. So I started some Zoom conferencing with them, thinking I was going to help them. <laughs> yeah, St. Jane. I actually got <laughs> far more out of it, I think, than they did. I, I so thoroughly enjoyed I didn't realize how much I had missed socialization. Um, and, and, and I feel for the people who now the economy is sort of opening up. We'll see how long that lasts or to what extent. But for during that, that good three-month period to not – to not actually see another human being, um, that had to be tough. Um, I'm going to assume that my invitation to your Zoom parties uh, just hit my spam filter, and <laughs> that's fine. Um, it, no problem at all. Yes, I, that was it. Yes. I do actually want to talk about one of the last times that uh, we were talking, and this was on the air just a couple of weeks ago. You are a fill-in host on KFI. One of our, uh, I think it's the highest rated radio station in Los Angeles right now. Uh, and it's certainly the largest talk radio station in the West. It's huge. And uh, I'm always happy to come on. And we talked about, you had me on to talk about something we actually didn't talk about all that much because we got <laughs> so busy with other things. Uh, but you had me on to talk about the freedom of speech and you were worried it's under attack. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. I think what was interesting is, as you pointed out, the First Amendment itself says Congress shall make no law. And so free speech, the First Amendment is really about the government uh, banning speech. Now, it certainly can. You can't shout fire in a movie theater, that kind of thing. Um, But I really feel um, I, I am not free to speak freely right now. I feel like anything... I say, can and will be held against me in the court of public opinion. I mean, people on Twitter, on all sp- all parts of the spectrum, are standing by at any second to turn on you, no matter what you say. And uh, that, well, that's from the far right or the far left. You know, whether the um, the Trumpsters or the you know Chop Chaz people in Seattle, uh, the whole thing in Seattle uh, was particularly disturbing to me because a reporter was told there were signs there saying you may not take pictures here without permission, even though it's a public space. And um, that's that's against American law, but they were forming their own laws in there. And I and I feel there's this. um, Look, I'll never forget the ACLU defending the Klan's right to march. Yeah, we hate the Klan, but they have a right to march. And that's what I think is under attack right now. I mean, this generation um, doesn't want to feel uncomfortable, but they're more than happy to make you feel uncomfortable and to brand you X, Y, Z, even if you agree with them on many things. And, and, you know, this whole thing about being silent is complicit, 
Well, then as soon as you open your mouth, you're showing, you know, your privilege. And it's very disturbing to me, this sense of anything you say, anything you say. I I, I did a tweet about, um, look, I did a silly tweet about, man, I finally got a manicure and five minutes later I ruined it. And you get you get responses of like, oh, good for you for getting a manicure, you privileged, you know, whatever. I'm like, can we just take a moment and not be angry at each other all the time? So a couple of things I want to disentangle, which the first one you said, which is it's not actually, of course, the First Amendment that's under attack because the First Amendment is only about the government telling you you can't say this or you can't say this, say this right now. And that what the First Amendment is most worried about is the government basically picking winners and losers, that we like Jane and she can talk, but we don't like Jessica that much, so she can't talk. Or we really like it when people talk about manicures. It kind of scares us when people talk about the economy. So manicures are okay. The economy's not okay. But then you did talk about the fact that a lot of this happens on social media. And I'm wondering how much of it is that our current discourse does seem to be, in part because we're home so much, and now we're on the computer more, how much of it does seem to just be dominated by social media? And is that really a reflection of what's happening in reality? Uh, They'll be doing many studies on that for years to come. Several PhDs will be issued based on that. I think part of it is we're staying home um, and we're freaked out. And uh, between the pandemic and the social unrest, which actually the social unrest upset me and made me this sort of t- tense in a way that the pandemic had not. I-, I guess I was just so distressed and depressed that we're still in a in a country where this happens. And I and discovered that I needed to learn things myself uh, that I thought I already knew, but what I didn't. But I also think we've just been marching towards this. Um, here, here's my take on why things are the way they are and you can I'd love your feedback. The Not media to worry. industry <laughs> The media industry is now so splintered because there are so many choices. You can you can pick from, you know, what a 500 sources of information online, on TV, on the whatever, podcast, radio. And so traditional media and and new media too are chasing a smaller portion of the pie, of the population, of the audience, because they have to, there's just too many choices. And so I think what has happened is in order not to lose the people they've captured, whether you're Fox News or MSNBC, you start making editorial decisions on what stories you're going to cover and how you're going to cover them. And it creates what I think has become a vicious cycle of you telling people the stories they want to hear the way they want to hear it, they're only listening to you because they don't want to hear it from someone else who tells them the way they don't want to hear it. And we end up where you'll have Rachel Maddow and Sean Hannity talking about the same thing, and you will think they are on two different planets. So we've had this these silos built, and you don't people are don't want to break out of their silo to hear a contrary opinion anymore. And we're just so freaking angry with each other all the time because we think the uh, the other is an idiot. So that's one of the things that worries me the most right now, particularly when I go into the classroom and the classroom really should be, I hate this word, but a safe space where people are paying a lot to hear me talk. And I want to hear their perspectives and I want to hopefully educate them. 
But one of the things that's most disturbing is somebody who comes up and says, I read XYZ. And it's clear that it's not based in reality. But it brings up this larger point that you're talking about, which is we're not all reading from the same script anymore. There's so many sources of news that we're just going to our self-reinforcing outlet zone. Yeah. And, and it's created this inability to like, I mean, the typical example, inability for MSNBC to talk to a Fox uh, watcher and vice versa. And is there any way out of this? Was this inevitable? How long have we seeing this? I know that's a terrible compound question. Thank God we're not in a deposition. <laughs> I object. Um, I Look, if you go back to the Civil War, you could read the newspapers in the North versus the South. You'd get two completely different versions of a story. So, Because the news business is a business. It's an advertising and a subscription, or if you're an NPR, uh, you, know, you also have sponsors and pledge drives. It's a business. You need money to continue doing it. And so while I think, you know, I'm fortunate to work at a place where the sales department never says, oh, you can't do a story on Toyota because Toyota, you know, is a major advertiser. That never happens. That would never happen. But, you know, when you're looking at ad sales and ratings, you start to think, hmm, who's our target audience? That's always the thing. Who's our target audience? That target audience is getting smaller and smaller. And I, and I don't know what changes it other than a revenue model that works. And I don't know how you, um, maybe at some point the pendulum swings back. Uh, Americans become more thoughtful. I, I am curious when you're in the classroom, do you feel your, do you feel it's a safe space for you to express yourself? I do with this caveat. It's not because I feel like they're going to, the students are going to come after me, but I feel very strongly that the students should feel comfortable. And I know that sounds like really naive and much nicer than, as you know, I actually am in real life. <laughs> but I don't want any student to think she's clearly, and then, you know, fill in the blank, really liberal, much more conservative than me, whatever it is. I consider myself, frankly, someone in the middle. So it depends on your perspective where you would put me. And, you know, so therefore, I can't share this thought or I can't respond in this way. Uh, so I do self-censor, but hopefully it's just... So that students feel comfortable not doing that. Um, you know, but, but, but let me ask you, because the universities are being blamed by uh, the right, I would say, for yes. creating a generation of students that have been indoctrinated and, and uh, you know, always want a trophy at soccer and are never, you know, want to made to, never challenged or made to feel uncomfortable, if you know what I'm saying. Is there any truth to that, in your opinion, based on your experience? No, but but I am just a pro- obviously a product of my experience. And so I've been really lucky with my students. Look, some classes are better than others. Some classes are more motivated than others. But I've never had a student walk in and, you know, say some version of, well, I showed up to class, so where's my A or B? And maybe it's a product of the fact that most of the classes I teach are at the law school level, and it's a graduate program, and they're there yeah. because they really want to be there. Yeah. Um, but largely, you know, they're adults, and uh, particularly in law school, it's kind of the assumption that you're going to have a little pushback, a little give and take to try and figure out either what everyone thinks or what the actual law is. And so that, you know, that kind of um, 
I don't want to say sharp elbows because that's not right, but you can push students and they can push you a little bit more because I think those are the ground rules. Then, for instance, when I teach my undergraduate course and it's just a, it's a different tone, but I don't feel like I'm saying to them or my colleagues are saying to them, you have to think this way. If you have a different perspective, you're an evil person and you're wrong because that's, look, some things are black and some things are white, but 98% 98% of the world is in between. I And I do think you're right about law school. Uh, what do they call it? The Socratic method. It's yes. a different way of thinking and logic. And it's very sort of, um, uh, forgive me if I'm wrong. It seems to me like any argument is right as long as you can build the most logical explanation behind it. Right? I mean, do I have that... Well, uh, (laughs) I would politely push back on that a little bit in the sense that, you know, I try and talk to my students about which arguments are likely to succeed in court, uh, which arguments have more support behind them. And then there's some classes where there's just a right and wrong answer. So I teach one class that's marital property. It's just incorrect, you know, to say that we don't split community property 50-50. I don't care what your argument is. It's just not the law. Right. you you brought up a really this point that I struggle with, particularly when I teach election law or when I teach the undergrads. Uh, apparently, this podcast is now just a place for me to uh, work through my own issues. It, yes, which, I'm interviewing you. Yeah, as it right. I've I've given over the reins, uh, which I think took about eleven minutes. I don't feel bad about that. And it's again, it's this idea that facts are malleable, and oh. I. I just, I don't know what to do with that. And I I try and talk to my students a lot about what was your source? Uh, why do you think it might be true? And why do we think that it might not be credible? credible? Yeah, there, well, there's so much. As we talk about all the information platforms, there's just so much disinformation out there, which which lives for a while. What I think is, what I do think one positive thing of this hyper- hypersensitive social media environment we live in is, in general, lies don't live long. In general, someone is standing at the ready to ask the questions you just asked and to provide counter-information. Now, that doesn't mean people want to hear it, but I um, and I have become, through many mistakes, I don't I don't retweet. You know, the perfect example of a of a uh, dilemma right now is the NASCAR noose. Yeah. Was that a garage pull or was that a noose? When the FBI first said, hey, not a hate crime. It's been there since October. It's a garage pull. I was like, oh, thank goodness. Thank goodness. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, wait, look at that thing. And there's not another one in a single other, the 1,700 other NASCAR garages. Just one noose. Just one pole with a loop on it that happens to look like a noose. And so this is where I have learned to start, well, although I, after the FBI came out with it's it's not a hate crime, I did retweet that like, well, thank goodness. And now I had to go, well, maybe not. Um, I am I am learning to become more careful with what I retweet, to give it... Um, Sometimes the 48-hour test. But social media is built for that quick, snarky response. And, and, and people respond in ways that they never would in person. I had a, I won't, I won't name the person, but colleague who I retweeted something 
they saw, not that it was for me, but just the statement and just went after it and said, that's not true. How could this person think this? And then I separately texted and I said, look, I I didn't mean that. And the person was so horrified and said, oh my goodness, I didn't see it was you. Of course, I never would have said something like that. What can I do to apologize? (laughs) And, but it shows that we're just, we're in our silos. We see something we don't agree with. We're never going to have to confront that person in real life or on the telephone. And sure, let's go for it and be super snarky. And it, you know, hopefully it's true. And but yeah, (laughs) hopefully, you know, but maybe we'll get a lot of retweets and a viral moment and let's go for it. And yeah, it's ugly. It it is, but and yet uh, the moment we stop taping, I assume you and I will quick do a quick refresh on Twitter <laughs> to see what's been happening. But it's also funny. I mean, I will say uh, Sarah Cooper, the comedian on Twitter, who yes. who lip syncs Trump uh, statements. Uh, people who follow me, who are just regular folks, tweet some of the funniest things. I get more laughter and joy off Twitter than I probably get hate and anger. And so, and also it's just allowed you in many ways to get the truth faster on breaking news. It's just a, it's a mess uh, with like, like the American experiment. Um, and I don't know how we, um, I don't know how to fix it. I don't know how to, can you, can you tone down the hate? Should you tone down the hate? Isn't that part of what this is all about is it's it you're allowed to hate that that is you are allowed to hate and uh i think you can counter that with hate or you can try and counter that with love and compassion uh two things that i'm not known for and uh i i don't know i don't know jessica but we are seem to be taking this thing ever ever more to an extreme so i'm going to stay with this for a little bit but on a specific issue which is the wearing of masks. And oh, so my we, God. We t- yes, I know that this is a favorite oh. topic for you. So we, and but the broad issue for me is how has science become a political issue? And maybe we completely disagree on this, but it seems to me that the scientific community, and we could say the same thing about climate change. The scientific community is united behind door number one, that either there is actual climate change it's human made and it's a big problem or in the case of masks you know masks help from an epidemiological perspective there's evidence that they either do a lot of uh, help a lot or at least help a little and this has become a situation where if you're wearing a mask i feel like it's almost a proxy for oh you must be a democrat and if you're not it's a proxy for you must be a republican so i guess what i really should have said is Jane Wells, wearing masks, go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, everything's political now. Um, It just is. I mean, I'm waiting for Galileo to be put back on trial again. But it's this whole thing about masks. I, again, I think it may be um, a stand-in for everything else that we're stressed out about. We're stressed out about the pandemic. We're stressed out about Black Lives Matters. We're stressed out about what that's going to mean to sharing power. Uh, the president stresses us out every day with everything he says, no matter whether you like him or not. He, he, lives to, he lives to stress you out. And so I feel like masks 
are a great physical object for us to channel all that into. And that's on both sides. I mean, you know, I feel like the Karen meme, everybody's a Karen, you know, not just white, suburban, entitled, privileged uh, women like me with fake blonde hair. It's like everybody out there is a Karen over this thing. And and I sometimes, look, I, I remember this is, I did a story in early May when Huntington Beach, when Orange County was just starting to open back up, or maybe it was mid-May. And living in Ventura County, I had, of course, wearing a mask to go to the store. Uh, in L.A. County at that time, you had to wear a mask if you were out in public. So I get out of my car in Huntington Beach, with, put on a mask, and I'm the only one wearing a mask. And... I start to feel peer pressure. I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm in my 50s. Why am I succumbing? I started to think maybe I should take off my mask because people are going to think I'm a weirdo. And then I thought, screw that. So I put my mask back on, and one of the store owners uh, wants to talk to me, and he reaches out to shake my hand. I said, hey, I'm good. And he wants to give me his business card. I said, you know what? I think I'm good. And he looks at me. He goes, oh, you're one of those. And I thought, I'm one of those. I'm one of those. Believers in science? Yeah, who's wearing a mask because why not? It doesn't hurt. Whether or not it helps, we know it doesn't hurt. And I, I just find people who go barreling through the store and don't social distance. Of course, I've been guilty a few times. Um, I, I think, I guess I'm on the mask side, looking at those who aren't and thinking you're being selfish and irresponsible. And they're looking at me like I'm some, you know, nag who's trying to make a statement that I'm better than they are. Yeah, that that's the part where I don't understand how that became the narrative of I'm wearing a mask too. If there's one thing we know, it surely protects the other person. It hopefully protects you. But it's really a sign of I'm trying to do something that's good for public health and how that has become a sign of being a pariah uh, or a, you know, I guess t- some would say like a crazy liberal. I don't or understand. Or a nanny state person. Right. I mean, how has that caught fire? I just think it's, again, it is us channeling, and it goes the other way too. You know, uh, like when, when someone was six feet, six feet, you know, right. that kind of thing. Like, all right. That, that, all right I didn't indeed. say it in that tone, to be fair. <laughs> I'll tell you one instance. One uh, last, a week ago or so, I was down in the port of Los Angeles doing a live shot. And I did the first live shot without my mask. Now, I'm with a two-man crew. We all stand six feet apart, and we wear our masks. We wear our masks. And then when I went live, because the particular mask, it was a new mask, and I could hardly breathe, note to self, don't take that mask next time. Uh, and when I'm live, I'm, uh, you know, energized. So I'm inhaling. You can see the mask uh, coming into when my mouth. So I took yeah. it off for the first live shot. And then I realized, oh, you know, the governor has said everybody's supposed to wear a mask when they're outside. So what, what, what do I do? What's my messaging? And I felt like this, you know, waffling thing. And I thought, I better wear a mask because... It says to all the other viewers in other states, oh, yeah, we got a mask thing in California now. And it just seemed to me good messaging, even though I was at that time more than six feet away from the crew. But, you know, it's windy. 
And afterwards, I got, I can't tell you, I got tweets from people saying, why did you put on a mask? I said, well, why not? Right. I, I, it, I don't know why. I think it is. Again, we're just, we're just a very angry, stressed nation. I would really like a president who is a uniter, but we don't have that guy. You know, he, he, as I, as I said, when we first met on Fox 11, he broke the mold. Um, and I, I would, I think back to W's speech at the Twin Towers right after yes. 9-11. I'm going to yes. get choked up thinking about it. That, in that moment, I'm like, that's my guy. Amer- I, you know, I am eternally optimistic about America. I can't believe this crazy, messy experiment has lasted almost 250 years. I mean, I'm a big thing on, you know, Reagan's uh, shining city on a hill. I have learned uh, over the last few weeks that uh, it's getting harder for some people to achieve the American dream that when you start from so far back in the race that others have had such a great head start, it's becoming harder and harder with income inequality and, uh, of course, the Black Lives Matter movement. And I, I, um, I don't know how we rebuild the middle class. I don't know how we close that gap. I'm still optimistic, but, it, but it, it's harder. It's harder when you start from nothing to catch up now. It is, so this is one of the huge issues of, that comes to when it comes to inequality in our country, which is I think people who were born on third base, if they hit a single and they then are at home base, say, look at that, I scored. Yeah. Whereas enormous number of people start at home base, have to round you know, the right. whole field first and are saying, look at how far I keep having to run. How do you not see this? Yes. I mean, so, some people will still hit a home run. Uh, but it's harder, especially if you can only hit a single. And I, th- I don't know. You know, people start talking about universal basic income, and I, I just, I don't think that's a road we want to go down in a country of 340 million people, where we're already saddling our grandchildren and great grandchildren with unsustainable debt. But who knows? Nobody ever seems to care about that. I just think we need to create opportunities. And that requires power sharing, not just throwing money at the problem, but sharing power. And that is scary for those who have it. Well, and this is, I think, uh, where, from my perspective, Make America Great Again is let's go back to that place where we didn't have to share power. Let's go back to that place where uh, things were comfortable and we had something that was comfortable, I should say, for certain people, of course. Um, and so we're, ta- we're kind of dancing around the 2020 presidential a little bit. Um, can I ask, I'm not going to ask you for a prediction because it's so difficult, <laughs> but do you have a sense of where Joe Biden is going in terms of running mates? Um, I know that was a hard le- right turn in this yes, particular no, discussion. No, but or a left term actually, yes. uh, um, Although let, I would like, let's talk about the election a little bit first, if you if you don't, because when we no, first met, it's which our was podcast two years now. Ago, let's be honest. Yeah, <laughs> that's fine. Oh um, man! So just a quick note to my uh, producer and director of marketing: we've got to change the logo. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, J and J. No, no. All right. I, I, how about? Would you like me to answer the Joe Biden question? No, no. And, and I then no. You take in, it wherever you want. No, in all seriousness, I, I, please, <laughs> seriously. Well, 
Because when we met two years ago on the set of Fox 11 with Alex Michelson's uh, The Issue Is, by the way, one reason why I immediately fell in love with you is you were so self-deprecating and started making fun of your blouse. Like that was the first thing you said is like, yes. why did I wear this blouse? <laughs> I look terrible. And you didn't. But I thought that was uh, that was so disarming. And I got some flack on that show. Again, this is July 2018. I where I, that. Yeah. Where I said, Alex says, you know, do you think Trump will be reelected? I said, look. If we have record low employment like we had right I now, which we did then, yes. and the stock market at record highs, and uh, you know, U.S. Steel is uh, creating more jobs, and our trade partners, we get better deals. And I said, and I think if we can even get peace on the Korean Peninsula, I said, I don't care if you think this guy's a buffoon. How does that guy not get reelected? And Alex said, well, well, what about the racism? I said, you may think he's a racist. You may think he's a misogynist. But if you're doing better than you were four years ago and the country's doing better, how do you not reelect him? I said, it's the economy, stupid, which is James Carville's great line, which I don't think um, anybody else except for maybe you on the set understood. I mean, they looked at me like, why are you calling me stupid? Um <laughs> And I caught some heat for that. And, well, now we are two years later, and it's the economy's not doing well. Right. Uh, we have record high unemployment. We do not have the trade deals we were hoping to get. We do not have peace on the uh, Korean Peninsula. So uh, I think I don't trust polls because the polls were mostly wrong last time. But I do think when the Wall Street Journal – has a daily drumbeat on his editorial page that uh, Trump's in trouble. I think, well, maybe he's in trouble. Again, as we're a long ways away. Can Biden, I, you know, the stories are the Biden's team, less is more, you know, just don't say anything. Just be, you know, just smile uh, and let Trump be Trump and you're going to win this thing. I don't know. But to your question about runmates, huh, there's, um, well, yeah, what do you think? Okay, so let, <laughs> all right, let's pause for a minute because I think there's an elephant in the room here, and that's the blouse uh, that I wore on <laughs> Alex Michelson's show. And I remember the producer pulled me aside and she said, you know, you're – or I sh well, I should say I remember a member of the staff uh, at Fox 11 pulled me aside and said, you did great, but you're not wrong about the blouse, and look at Jane Wells – she is a professional. She is the ultimate pro. She showed up. Look at her outfit. She's ready to go. And no. she's fantastic. And then I... Oh, they, no. They showed a clip of that, um, of our episode later on. And I remember saying to Alex on air, why do you hate me? Burn that clip <laughs> just as I burned the blouse. And But, but I do remember... That we met, and I immediately thought you were hilarious, and I really wanted to talk to you more. And we didn't agree on all that much, but that was actually kind of fun. Well, you have to go back and look at the clip because they go to a wide shop while I'm saying, a wide shop, I'm saying, you know, how do you not reelect the guys? The economy's stupid. You are doing everything in your power <laughs> not to look horrified and mortified. You, you are like, um, Pursing your lips in a way, <laughs> oh, no. like you're holding your breath. It's hilarious. Like, oh, my God, I thought I liked her, but no, this is it. So I think actually it was, oh, God, she's probably right. 
So, oh. if the, you know, if the economy holds, which, of course, everybody hopes the economy holds, nobody wants the economy to tank, I thought we could be looking at a re-election. And it's, it's no secret that I don't support the president. I don't think of myself as a partisan, believe it or not, but uh, I don't support this president. And I, I remember thinking, that's right, it's that James Carville line, uh, who, of course, was famously Bill Clinton's uh, campaign manager and advisor, which is, uh, it's the economy stupid. That's what people vote on. They vote, they vote on what? affects their daily lives. Yes, people vote, people, who's going to make me feel safe and secure? And that's financial security and that's national defense. Uh, This time, it may be, you know, who who makes me feel better about being an American? I, I just, I think, I'm not a Biden fan. Look, I'm not a Trump fan. I'm not a Biden fan. Uh, But if somebody can at least appear like a uniter and in Biden's case in particular, it is the VP because, you know, he he may he may have, uh, you know, he may be senile and he's old. So um, who his number two is, I think will could really swing the election for him. I always feel one, I will say I have no sense of his cognitive ability. So I just I'm not passing judgment on that. But two, I would say. Don't we really actually not vote for the top of the ticket, for the, excuse me, for the bottom of the ticket? I mean, or is this different because he's older? Because most people, frankly, I think are either voting for Trump or against Trump, but not necessarily voting for Joe Biden. I, uh, well, that was this. That was the key against Hillary. You know, people were either voting for Hillary or against Hillary was what I thought the uh, 2016 election was all about. It was her. Um, I, I do think in Biden's case. The VP matters uh, because he – there I think is a great contingent of voters, and I'm no expert, who want to have a reason not to vote for Trump. And I'm not sure Kamala Harris is the reason to not vote for Trump. So I think that answers my question of who do you think the front runner is. And my sense is you I'll, think it's California Senator Kamala Harris. I do. Uh, there's a whole list in the Washington Post of who they – think as in who who the Biden campaign is asking for more information on. And the uh, New York Times did a fascinating story on Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth yes, this week. I saw that. And I thought I did not know her story, but here is a, a combat helicopter pilot from the Iraq war who lost both her legs, who grew up on food stamps in, you know, Hawaii, hard scrabble upbringing, uh, Vietnam veteran, white father, Thai mother, um, and just Someone who is who understands war, understands the military, understands what it's like to be poor, and I don't. I want to hear her speak, but that's a sort of person where you might think, um, okay, okay, I feel okay about that for that for that contingent of people who are in the, who haven't decided. This is the thing that's always fascinating to me about an election like this, which is. How could you truly be undecided between these two choices? I can understand being maybe unmotivated by politics right now. The kind of throw up your arms. I don't, it's all a dirty business. I don't want to deal with it. But if who is that undecided voter? There is really no overlap between the two candidates at this point. I think there may be the undecideds are maybe a better word white might be the apathetic voter. Is yeah. there a reason to a reason to vote? Right. I mean, so that's why I think the election and you know this just as well as I do 
of course, it always comes down to the swing states. But we say swing voters. I increasingly think we, particularly for an election like this, we mean the apathetic voters, as you said. We mean the ones who might not come out to vote. We have to get those that sliver of voters. There's six states about that we're looking at. And then there's just a, really a couple of voters where, not, not a couple, but in comparison to the American population, there's yeah. a pretty small percentage of people who are going to decide this for us. Yeah, I mean, you, you, it gets down to a few counties in America, uh, in Michigan or wherever, Pennsylvania, Florida, decide the election. It, um, sh- I guess this is the moment where I can say, your thoughts on the Electoral College, Jane West? <laughs> so I am a fan, okay? And even though it comes down to a few counties, uh, here's why. First of all, I think the framers of the Constitution, as messy it is, I, you're going to, you may laugh. I think the Constitution is proof that God exists because as messy and conflicted and at times hypocritical it is, it is the most incredible document uh, I think man has ever created. Although you could also talk about the Bible, which some would say God inspired, blah, blah, blah. I think I think the Constitution is amazing. I like the fact that Madison wanted the presidential election to be this sort of combination of both state decision and public decision. And I think without the Electoral College, California decides the president every four years. And the, the, the Electoral College gives the rest of the country a chance to have a say. Um, and I think that's important. It's not perfect. And I don't know. I, I don't want to fix it. I, I think I don't think it's worth amending. Certainly last election, Hillary won the popular vote. That was not the first time that's happened. But I just think majority vote, um, I, I, maybe you do change it so that states can change it so that it's proportional, which I think a couple of states allow you to do that, but most states are winner take all. Yeah. It, it's mostly worked. Uh, so I don't think it's broken. Well, there of, of course, there's a big Supreme Court case uh, that will come out very soon uh, dealing with whether or not electors can be faithless, whether or not they have to mm-hmm. vote according to the vote of their state. But um, my sense of the Electoral College, I mean, obviously it has a lot of pros and cons, but it's designed so that it's supposed to be a safety guard. Basically, it's a safety valve in some ways against ourselves, to protect ourselves. Yes, yes. And it doesn't function that way anymore. It's a a rubber stamp. So if you read what we intended the Electoral College to be, it's essentially that the people might be taken by a demagogue who – isn't particularly prepared. And so the Electoral College will say, we know you just voted, but hold on a second. You don't want this person leading the country. So we're going to save you <laughs> from yourselves. And it, of course, it doesn't function that way. And, and in fact, now it gives an enormous amount of power to voters in smaller states and typically more conservative states. And, you know, the, the problem I have isn't that so much that it means that you know, California would have a lot more power. The problem I have is that some voters have so much more power just depending on what state they live in. So and, how would you rebalance it? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm i not here to provide any sort of solutions whatsoever. No, so how do you... <laughs> we, just, we just pass judgment. We just, we just pass judgment in our newly branded podcast. Uh, you know, I do think at this point... 
and I go up and back about it, but I do think that there's something to be said for the national popular vote, even though it means that candidates will just go to the most populous places, even though that it means it will totally change the way we campaign in the sense that it could actually become more expensive because you can't do retail politics. You have to do more of ad buys buys, on either TV or now, I think, increasingly social media. But it does seem to me really bizarre that there are on election day, there are some voters who have, you know, th- three, four, five times the power to pick the president as as other voters. And that um, and and we know where those voters are. I mean, this skews towards helping Republican candidates. It's not even it's not neutrally distributed in terms of who it helps. Well, that may change this year, though. I mean, if you're looking at these places in Michigan and Pennsylvania, that that may uh, Biden and if he has a senator from Illinois or where I, I, that may change. I like the tension, Jessica. I like it that it's not perfect um, and that we struggle with it because I think if we get rid of it, it's just a runaway um, every four years. We covered a lot of topics today. We covered masks. We covered income inequality the election, um, my wardrobe on TV. <laughs> so, so, and I promised you 30 minutes. We're at 49 now. Oh, you can cut. Believe me, I'm a yapper. You can cut. <laughs> no, but um, so let's go to kind of the ending portion of the podcast. And my hope is I want to do two things. One, I want to ask all of my guests the same three questions. Uh, to learn a little bit more about you. Although I have to say, I think delightfully, we learned a lot about you. And then I want to ask what you're working on and what you think um, that listeners should be tuning into. So first, one of my mom's favorite questions, which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party and why? I thought about this. A lot of names went through my head. Uh, Jesus, Elizabeth I, MLK, Neil Armstrong. And then I realized... Oh, I'm going to get choked up. The person I would really like to meet is the very first ancestor of mine who set foot on this continent. Find out where they came from. I haven't done a genealogy, but a man and woman. Maybe they came together. Maybe they met here. Why they came here and what what they left and what their expectations were. So how many generations do you go? Does your family go back in America? Do not know. Um, I know it's pre-Civil War. Uh, I, I don't know. We haven't done it. There is, you know, I did 23andMe. There was this lore that there's some uh, seminal, you know, I, I, I about probably have as much native DNA as Elizabeth Warren. But um, I, it, it did show up in the 23andMe. Um, and I don't know. So who knows? Who knows? Um, but I just think, particularly for someone coming from, Europe, whether it was the 17th, 18th, 19th, early 19th century, I don't know. What were you leaving? Why did you come here? And what do you expect? And then what do you think of it 200 plus years later? Yeah, what, right. What would you think when you look around? Would you think it was worth it? Did you make the right decision? Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, what do you think of this place? And I just would love to know that whole the people who came here were usually fleeing something unless they were brought here forcibly against their will or they were already here minding their own business. Um, so what were you fleeing? 
why did you have to come here? I, I just think that's fascinating. It's, it really is a universal experience in terms of uh, why, are, why are we here and who did you come from? Yes. So now that you said something deeply profound, I'm going to say something um, deeply superficial. Uh, so the, <laughs> the next question is, uh, you're going to be stranded on a desert island. Amazon Fresh is going to deliver you only one meal. What is the meal going to be? Oh, I know exactly what it's going to be. It's from Mastro's. It's the uh, New York Strip, uh, medium rare, with their uh, blue cheese macaroni and cheese thing and uh, maybe some asparagus and a fantastic, the most expensive bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon that they have on hand. I am starving now. Uh, So you're vegan. We didn't talk about that. (laughs) I look. I am cutting back, but um, there I will never give up meat. Uh, it tastes too good, and I'm sorry. Well, uh, we look forward to sponsorship from Mastros for our podcast. <laughs> Last one. You've got one superpower for an hour. I would fly. Uh, married to a pilot. I am, yes, but I, w- I would love to fly like a hawk or an eagle for an hour just to soar and catch the wind, and uh, I just think that would be the coolest thing in the world. No disagreements here. Finally, you're working on some really interesting projects. Could you tell us a little bit about them? Okay, so I was talking about the media, and, and this, to me, I've always wanted to do historical stories of what is what if modern media and social media existed during great moments in history. Uh, I did a couple years ago, Top Story Tonight, The Mayflower, where people were, you know, live streaming the, the trip across and Native American radio talk show hosts were taking calls over whether or not to kill them, blah, 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 blah. Now I'm doing Jesus, Top Story Tonight, Jesus, where modern media and social media and the Kardashians and everybody exists in first century Judea. And they're all trying to figure out if Jesus is God or is he a delusional radical? And I mean, he's the original disruptor, the most viral story ever told. Um, The devil is interviewed by a guy parodying Alex Jones. We've got Joe Rogan asking the disciples if they smoke weed. Um, So the angels are Instagramming and Herod tweets at 3 a.m. about fake news. So this is all happening because every actor in America has now got their home studio and doing voiceover work. And uh, I have a Kickstarter campaign on it. But if you go to my Twitter, at Jane Wells, uh, my pinned tweet is a link to the Kickstarter campaign for Top Story Tonight Jesus, which launches next holiday season. All right, Jane Wells. I want to thank you so much for passing judgment with me. And I also want to thank the listeners. And I want to thank my team, uh, my producer, Joe Armstrong, who also has done the music for the podcast. I want to thank my director of marketing, Joey Brooks, who did the logo, who's helping us uh, reach out and find you. And we will see you next time.